listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Happy Memorial Day to each and every one of you. A lot of people have uh, come into my awareness today that have given their lives and limbs so that those of us who may disagree with them can do just that. This isn't always the case, but I I have uh, been fortunate enough to have known several people who have been involved with uh, the military and big decisions and so forth. And I have been struck in each case uh, about the resolve, the dedication that these people felt towards a major, major uh, undertaking. And while we don't always see eye to eye on various issues and so forth, uh, I have been amazed at how instructive it has been to listen very deeply to the people who are suffering, who have lost loved ones fighting in foreign lands, whether it's a war that has passed or a war that is being fought right now, that these these brave souls are out there. And they're within each of us. I sometimes think what it must be like to experience combat. I think every male goes through that. Some of you may have in this room, but the, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that men traditionally have carried with them uh, is the idea that I may have to go away and fight. And uh, this brings all sorts of very, very interesting, interesting stuff up for most guys. Especially the idea, what am I willing to die for? And in this spiritual practice, this is very much kind of a, a space where we, we uh, willingly kind of inhabit this, this orientation. Um, since we quite literally begin to consciously dance with the inevitability of death. This is all going to end. So how are we going to make it count? Or, uh, I mean, I always go back to that that quote from uh, Braveheart, you know, 
every man dies, but not every man really lives. You know, so how, how are we men and women going to live, actually live with that inevitability kind of uh, confronting us? That's where we get to be creative. And it also means that we need to forgive ourselves and others. It also means that we need to be at peace with the way things are if we're going to move along the path. Even though we may not like the way things are, even though we may see stuff on, you know, television or read stuff in the blogosphere or, you know, in the morning paper that just doesn't correspond with our sense of what is good, true, and beautiful, being able to accept that it is happening and then engage from that place of uh, deep surrender allows for us to build a better world. When we allow ourselves to be changed by the world, we then have the ability to actually engage in that dance constructively and consciously. Whether we are in the military or not, we can be at peace with war. Not that it means it's okay, but that it means that's what is. And if we can be at peace with it, we then can engage in true peacemaking because we're no longer at war with war. Instead of being anti-war, we are pro-peace. At a really deeply, you know, root level for each of us. And that applies to our day-to-day. -day. Are you, or am I, or any of us, are any of us at war with anything? Are we at war with our bodies? Are we at war with the inevitability of, say, dying? Are we at war with a particular, a particularly troubling person or personality uh, in our life? Are we at war with our own egos? Are we at war with our, the shadow elements of our egos? Are we doing okay? Are we hitting the mark? Are we doing our best to hit the mark? And by that, I mean, are we doing our best to kind of stay focused, keeping our eyes on the prize? I was actually, I will bring this up. I was, uh, there was this little slip of paper. I thought this was cool. It's, a, it's a, from the Bible, book of John 129. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin means missing the mark in, in, in archery. You know, you, you pull the arrow out of your quiver, you boom, let it go. And sin is missing, missing your target. The Lamb of God, so to speak, meaning that in us which is totally at peace and open, as it meets the world, we hit the mark.
when we can consciously bring that openness into our experience, being open to closure, as we can bring that into our experience, we are right on track. And it's not something we're really working at as much as it's something that is a, a guiding force. We begin to just kind of open to it, let it live itself through us. This does not mean that sitting in meditation is going to necessarily stop the world from fighting. But what it does mean is that sitting in meditation can actually stop whatever war you may have going within your own heart or your own mind. And from that place, you have a much better chance of stopping the war in the world. In fact, I would say that no war in the world can be stopped until the war in your heart is ended. So, during tonight's meditation, it would be quite marvelous if we could be simultaneously uh, filled with gratitude for all those who have come before us and given so much so that we can be right here in this room in this time. And simultaneously not be at war with anything. That a deep, elemental forgiveness can begin to pervade our bodies just like breathing allows for all the necessary oxygen to pervade our bodies. Let forgiveness, let openness pervade your body. this practice, we will find that, uh, and it's different for everyone, but uh, the wisdom and compassion fused together, they kind of mature differently in each individual. Uh, but they do mature, they do grow, and they kind of follow a certain path that I was interested to kind of share with you. Um, Every single practitioner will inevitably, inevitably run into uh, a bit of beginner's luck where they will be sitting in meditation and suddenly they go, well, okay, this is good. That usually happens at some point. There needs to be kind of a payoff of some kind. It might be small, but it's enough to keep the person coming back. And this can show up not only as a meditative experience, but it can also show up as a group of people, or with me, it was uh, I had a I had a, a a teacher that was really he just seemed to know the right words to totally kick my ass, and that was what I was looking for. I was looking for someone to rattle the cage, and this guy did a really good job of it. So you know that was part of it. And then what I started noticing was, hey, this meditation stuff actually feels good. I actually get high when I'm doing this. I'm coming back for more. And then there were a couple of really, really profound experiences that were like, okay, this is, this is unbelievable. 
um, this is something really special. And then I spent uh, about from that point, probably four years trying to get back to that level of pleasure. That the ecstasy that I experienced on the cushion, I was always trying to go back. How am I going to get that again? How do I get that experience again? And there's this amazing plateau. We usually pop a little bit and then we hit this plateau. It's very dark, very dry uh, spell. Time in the desert for each of us in our meditation practice. Some of you may have hit that. Some of you may have not hit that yet. But when it hits, know that it's a good sign. It's actually a good sign. It actually means that you have gone past the initial uh, uh, realignment and you've moved into a different space, which is kind of a settling, kind of a slow integration with the stillness into your body, okay, and into your mind, and into your heart. The next big jump occurs, different for each individual, but it usually occurs when we are absolutely, completely, and totally clear about that discomfort. When we're 100% okay with the fact that, huh, this is not positive, it's not negative, excuse me, it's not neutral. This is actually quite negative. And initially, the feeling is, it's, this is negative and this isn't what I want. I want it to be positive, so I want to go back to the way it was, you know. How am I going to get back there? Well, actually, you don't want to go back anywhere. You want to keep evolving. You want to keep growing. And the way to that deepening clarity is to be absolutely fine with the discomfort. To be really clear about the fact that, hey, this is not... This is negative, actually. This is completely, 100% and totally negative. I'm in misery. Hmm. The misery is arising in this moment. And being absolutely clear with that, absolutely clear with that, allows for this process to begin gaining traction for another move. And so I want to be really encouraging about that for each and every single one of you. If you find yourself in this space where it's kind of like, yeah, not just, oh, I don't feel like meditating today, but like, oh, I've been meditating for weeks. I've, I've upped my, you know, the number of minutes I, I meditate each day. I've changed positions. This sucks. That is okay. That is just fine. No harm, no foul. Keep at it. <laughs> as best you can get really clear about the discomfort whether it's physical or emotional be just really right there with the discomfort and in doing so we're able to kind of come up with this real kind of easy uh, easy map um, and since acronyms have been kind of a theme over the last uh, month, I'm going to give you another acronym. Okay, this is how stillness, how um, uh, uh, a meditation practice typically will mature in an individual. It's called the SNORP protocol. S N O R P, the SNORP protocol. <laughs> and I just came up with that, so I'm hoping you enjoy this. We'll, we'll take a vote afterwards. If you don't like it, I'll drop it. But SNORP just seemed like the perfect. Do you ever remember reading, um, Are You My Mother? Are You My Mother? With Okay, and so the little uh, animal gets lost, and it's, uh, the little bird gets lost, and it keeps looking, Are You My Mother? And it's like, No, I'm not your mother. And there's this one 
uh, it finally goes up to a, a giant uh, earth mover. It's, are you my mother? And it says, no, I'm a snort. Well, this is like that, except it's with a P. Where the hell did that come from? Anyway, so, so just, just stick with me easy here, okay? Yeah, easy to remember, exactly. Snorp. Yeah, everybody's going to walk out of here going, wait, snort? Snort, no, snorp. It stands for, ready for this? It's safety, followed by negativity, followed by opening, followed by return, followed by participate. So we begin with safety. In fact, most of us enter into a meditation practice because we don't feel safe. We feel like something's not quite right. Something's amiss. We want to find security and safety. We want to find freedom. We want to find liberation. Whatever word we want to ascribe to it, that's all great. But we're looking for something. We're looking for safety. We're looking for refuge. The world's going crazy, or my marriage is going, my life's going crazy, whatever it is, my job, I lost my job, my, my whole world is going crazy. I'm looking for safety. Um, the sense of safety that each of us has can be equated to the surface of our personal consciousness. At the surface of our personal consciousness, we are all looking for safety. We're looking for understanding something that we can literally stand on. We're looking for, which is another way of saying, we're looking for something we can hold on to. With this wind blowing this hard, I've got to be able to hold on to something. Okay? The surface of our personal consciousness is always, always, always looking for safety. We're looking to identify with something. One of the great ways of finding safety is, is identifying with, okay, I am a suburban dude. That's my identity. I barbecue really well. I <laughs> There's no one that can clean pool filters as well as I can. I am a suburban guy. I'm a dad. I'm not just a suburban guy. I'm a dad. Oh, and I'm a husband. I'm an American citizen. I'm a Republican or Democrat. I am, you get the idea? We start looking for these identifications, these ways of saying, that's who I am, that's not who I am, or, or the greatest uh, egoic excuse of all, especially like in, a, um, in a, an argument, that's just the way what I am, okay? <clears throat> these are all well and good, but they're only at the surface. They're all about us feeling safe to go to the next step gets a little weird because we start recognizing, huh, there's no safety. There's nothing here to hold on to, really. At least that's what this teaching is telling me. And in some weird way, that's what my experience is starting to tell me. My experience is telling me that there is no safety, that actually everything is temporary. And if everything is temporary, that means I can't hang on to anything no matter how hard I try. I can just try to prolong death. And then once that occurs, once we realize that we cannot hang on to anything, this spontaneous arising of negativity shows up. Negativity shows up overtly as a fight or as a war. It shows up subtly as something that is just a general sense of fear or anxiety. 
the negativity is either dormant in us or it's full, you know, it's, you know, full bore or it's somewhere in between, but it's there. And one of the things that meditation practice does is it forces that issue. It forces us to actually confront, to be intimate with that negativity. The negativity is in the interior of our personal conscious. Whereas safety was all about the surface, the negativity is about when it's gone deeper, something has penetrated, and we're like, you weren't supposed to see that. That wasn't supposed to be touched. That was not supposed to be examined. Negativity arises when ego also sees that it won't be able to manage the enlightenment experience. When ego realizes, I can't do it, uh, it can't be done with me, uh, quick, sabotage something, okay? As we were discussing, you know, kind of going on this, this plateau that is so common, that's a great area for ego to just wrestle back control of the entire experience. When people start saying, you know what, I'm no longer getting out of meditation what I used to, or I'm no longer getting out of my spiritual practice what I used to, let me try something else. This is a great way for ego to kind of jump in and try to manage and say, see, you're not getting what you thought you, you're not getting what you wanted. Therefore, we have to make a change. Sometimes that's appropriate. Other times, it's a distraction. And for us to kind of figure out which is which arises with a sangha, with a teaching, with a teacher as fast as anything else. It prevents kind of a circuitous detour from showing up. But anyway, looking at our negativity... Uh, second step, we become, once we start to become okay with our negativity, we've made friends with it. It's no longer destroying us. It no longer takes us for a ride. Then we recognize that there's a certain opening that's occurring. This opening is quite beyond our personal consciousness. It's not the interior. It's not on the surface. It's actually on the outside of it that the opening actually can be recognized equally on the surface and within and without. There's a unification that occurs, a oneness that is realized between and among us and everything else. We start seeing that everything arises within this awareness. Therefore, everything arises within us. We start seeing that we are utterly, completely, and totally connected, that there really isn't a boundary that's substantial between us and other, between self and other, in here and out there. It starts shake, getting a little shaky, and then it gets really shaky. And when it gets really shaky and it falls apart, it falls away. Or as we say in Zen, when body-mind is dropped, suddenly there's this just amazing opening. And that amazing opening that is beyond words and phrases name and form, that truth, if you will, then has the opportunity to our return. So we've had the safety, we've had the negativity, we've had the opening, and now we return. And returning means that we return to our cushion as much as anything else. We're not done. We're not done when we recognize openness. 
we're not done, even if we've had a verifiable, you know, something that has been authenticated as an, an enlightenment experience. Actually, we're, that's pretty much where things start in many respects. That's when the return happens. That's when we recognize this vast openness that is available 100% all of the time, this infinite heart and mind that is always already here. We begin to carry that awareness and let it go moment by moment by moment in each and every single situation that we find ourselves. We return, we come home. Fat and happy in the marketplace with gift bestowing hands, so to speak. We come home. We've had this experience of summiting this mountain of spirit. We've climbed it, we hit the top, and now we're coming home. And we're coming home not as a separate sense of self that can lay claim to, ah, look what I have seen. But rather, we come home as a totally ordinary person. And it's from that place, that undivided place, that we then begin to participate in the world. P. We participate from a place of openness. We participate from a place of love. We participate from a place of non-division, non-war. We participate fully in everything it is that we do, engaged as a full human who still sits on his or her cushion, who still brushes their teeth, who still freaks out when their daughter runs into the parking lot, who still cries when she sees a sad film, who still weeps for fallen soldiers. So that really this work is about becoming more human, not more removed that the SNORP protocol shows us how to be more alive. Even as each of us faces the inevitability of death. You know, it's cool. I love that question. And I think I, I, it's not... As we're distracted. Yeah. We're distracted by all this information, but we're also given gifts by all this information. Just like if there was less information, we could still be distracted with less. I'm, I'm comparing our society and our world today to 2,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. I assume it was very simple. Yeah, I don't think it was. <laughs> Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, if we were living 2,500 years ago, let's say we were living on this land 25, you know, 2,500 years ago, 
um, we have this sense that it was really idyllic and that, you know, we would go around smashing up acorns to create, you know, a mush and, and then we would bask in the sun if we weren't fishing out here at Los Trompas Creek or something like that. Um, I don't think you can minimize how nasty, brutish, and short, to quote Hobbes, that life might have been. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, you start looking at really primitive cultures and we idealize the primitive culture as be being, wouldn't it be cool if we could return to that kind of savage nobility or that we could become noble savages and so forth? Well, look real closely and I think you'll find that there's a lot that isn't so noble. And it's not that they're bad, but it's just that the human tendency of attachment and clinging has existed throughout time. <coughs> as a way of getting the gene pool to deepen, you know? Yeah. And so, so as much as I look at, at, you know, life years and years and years ago as maybe having something, you know, something that we could lay claim to or hang on to and try not to lose, I believe in all that very much, but I also believe that there is no better time to be alive than right now. I think right now we have an infinite array of opportunity at our disposal, an infinite array of challenges, you know, in our faces. But I also think that um, awakening to that truth that we talk about so much in here, mm -hmm. beyond name and form, not your truth or my truth, but truth or the infinite, awakening to that in today's context, knowing what we know now, we know a lot about subatomic theory. We know a lot about the, you know, exterior, you know, the universe and so forth. We know a lot about all sorts of things. Bringing awakening into this world is even more powerful than it could have been in, uh, you know, even 100 years ago. Yeah. You know, the teaching is more available now and its application it's ap the application of this teaching is more, uh, the, the potential for it is much, much greater. Now, maybe I'm just an optimist who, you no, know. That's I, I just, talking to a lot of people, like more and more people say, God, I wish we would just turn off all this inundation of information and students. Well, I think that's what meditation is. And, I think, yeah. and so what, you know, would, I, I agree with that. But I think if you can come at the inundation from a place of equanimity, which is supported by meditation practice, it don't hurt so bad. You know, it allows us to stay kind of clear. I think that's one of the great tools of, you know, if you're going to look at meditation as a tool, it's, it's one of the great offerings that it, that, it, that it shows us. How to remain kind of in that space, that opening, where we're not resisting, right? Where we're present. You know, so we've left safety. We've left negativity. We can actually be in this space of openness so that we can return into the world and we can participate in the world, you know, from a place that doesn't get rattled. I like Snorp, too. Snorp. Well, it sounds like a good kid's book, too. Yeah, Snorp. Snorp for ch Awakening for Children. Uh, a guide to snorp. Something like that, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Time is reading with my 10-month-old 
granddaughter. Ah, there's a teacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember when, I can't remember which kid it was. How many you have two now? Mm-hmm. But you said, you know, like the little Buddhas. And I really, my granddaughter, I mean, it's like, I'm learning so much from them. Yeah, they're great teachers. Absolutely. Yeah. Except when it's three in the morning. Then it's just the damn teacher. <laughs> you're, that you're so. Lo- I can't wait to be a grandparent. Absolutely. Give. Whoa. <laughs> it's, it's about to vomit. Here you go. You take it. Yeah. Yeah. They. They are. They are continually expressing themselves fully and completely in this very moment. Yeah. They. However. The difference is that it's not that that's our inner Buddhahood that we need to reclaim through. It's, that's not true. They don't have, as opposed to being ego-less, they look at this entire universe as an extension of their ego, as opposed to extending to what's essentially beyond their ego. So we make that, we make that fallacy, I think, uh, uh, Ken Wilber writes about it, he calls it the pre-trans fallacy. We can confuse uh, kind of this pre-conscious behavior with trans-egoic behavior, and that gets us into, even though it looks the same, it's vastly different in, in its application. So, yeah, so in other words, like we would look at, uh, um, I guess Piaget, Theorist, uh, uh, Swiss theorist talked about how we have a pre-conventional uh, moral structure. No, that was, it was, uh, I'm forgetting that it wasn't, it wasn't Piaget, but uh, I'll, get to, I'll get to it in a second. It'll come to me. Anyway, pre-conventional, and then we have post-conventional, then we have trans, we can go all the way, or pre-egoic. We can go trans-egoic. One goes past the ego, one is before the ego has been established. So in the baby's situation, we're looking at a pre-ego, right? It basically looks at everything as an extension of me, therefore there are, there are no boundaries, but it means there are no boundaries, I get whatever I want, right? But then trans-egoic is when we recognize that there isn't an I. And they show up oftentimes as the same, but they are held differently. We're at a point now where we can be aware of our awareness, right? Mm-hmm. The baby can't. The baby is just, I mean, unless it's like some really special baby, you know? Um, but there again, it's a, it's a, they're still a gift. They remind us of a certain purity. Thank you. Yeah, oh, absolutely, Mark. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Yes. I'm struggling a little bit with the idea of climbing the mountain of spirit and snark. The, the, how, you, how you bring these two together, climbing the mountain of spirit and snorp. Well, snorp, remember, is basically labeling just stops on the mountain. So like, for instance, safety would be at a fairly low altitude, but you're still climbing, mm-hmm. right? And negativity also is going to show up right as you start getting towards the summit. That's usually when the ego starts. There's usually a big plateau there, and the ego's going, enough, enough, enough. Why are you doing this? This is uncomfortable. Your knees are sore. You're not getting anywhere. You know, right? And then what happens is pop opening. And that opening is, it's like above the tree line and above the cloud cover. And so at that point, we have summited. 
And then we begin the process of returning, coming back down the mountain, except this time we're no longer carrying the baggage that we had with us on the other side. We couldn't open until we let go of the negativity. We let go of the safety. And so now we can return, and we're returning as more completely who we've always been. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom, the presence, or excuse me, the participation, is when we, we, we not only returned home, we now get right back into our lives. Totally different, yet very much the same. Does that, does that make more sense? Okay, great. Thanks for asking. I think, that, that's, I think that's important. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, so, so the returning, though, I'm um, wondering if then it sort of it repeats itself. So you summit, then you return. You summit, then you return. Progressing or participating more fully in a different but same way, but does it repeat itself? Every moment. Okay. However, there is yes, it does repeat every moment. We're never like there. You know, it's like we don't arrive. And then just, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> what, what's happened to you? No, I'm participating. <laughs> uh, can't do that. I mean, essentially what it is, is we, we are continually reassessing our safety, reassessing our negativity, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, opening continually. Right, returning continually, participating all the time, so that this this <laughs> this the snorp protocol actually just keeps it keeps moving. You know, we are never fully there. You know, it's what we are is fully participatory in the experience of being human. And that gets augmented and it gets shifted and changed the minute we start engaging in a really deep spiritual practice. What we start recognizing is that, man, this is ongoing. Having said that, um, it gets more subtle and it shifts continually. Uh, for some reason, I've been looking at this uh, a great deal like playing piano. You know, there comes a point after a certain number of hours, when you're playing, you can sit down at those keys and magic happens. And it can be either your magic, you know, as someone who's just playing, you know, what they play, or you can have somebody throw sheet music in front of you and you can bring Chopin alive, right? There's a certain steadiness in your, in your expression of music, right? Same thing happens in spiritual practice. There's a certain steadiness that begins to kind of creep into the seasoned practitioner who has this maturation of stillness has shown up as kind of this, you know, this idea, this presence begins to really just, it's like sopping wet. It's like, oh my God, that is just powerful, powerful. People who continually do that and, can, and have the resolve to stick with the practice, even when negativity is just saying, come back, down the mountain, come back, put the, you know, I mean, when they, they keep going, when they keep going, really amazing stuff can happen. And they, they learn to, to recognize those egoic calls that say, come back down. They learn to recognize them and no longer go to war with them. They just hear them. <laughs> there you are. 
I hear you. No, I know. I know. Oh, I know. You're going to be just fine. Miserable as always, but just fine. You know? And then we keep, we keep going. Yeah? You're very welcome. Anyone else? Yeah, yes, sir. I'm not sure if I heard you say this, but I've heard other people say that the <clears throat> descent of the mountain, so to speak, the coming back and bringing it this into um, regular life or whatever can be as hard as climbing the mountain in the first place. I think so. So how does that work? Uh, because it's continually, you're, you're continually climbing, summiting, and descending in every moment. And now you're trying to do it consciously. Whereas before, you were just trying to let go of everything. And now you're trying to integrate it. So uh, bringing, and this is where, this is where, again, I go back to uh, teacher, teaching, and group. Finding your people. That's really important. It helps, it helps this process. It helps you integrate it back into a participatory life. Same thing with the teaching itself. The teaching can help give us markers. It can help cultivate a deepening that can then be expressed in the day-to-day. -day. And the teacher also, in the same way. We start recognizing. The cool thing is that uh, you know, once we start returning and we start kind of reconfiguring and getting in, it's like it, on the one hand, it's like we have, we have taken off all the clothes that have constrained us. We're like naked in nature, right? But at the same time, there is a readjustment because it can get a little chilly. Um, or we can be exposed to the light. You know, we can get sunburned, so to speak, to stretch this metaphor. Okay? And so, yeah, we, we, we have different challenges that we're dealing with. But the container of Sangha, the container offered by the teaching and teacher, often can allow for that to kind of begin to settle. And that's a, it's a challenge. Uh, I guess... It's hard to say this, I don't want to mis misconstrued, but I felt like coming home was so much easier than climbing. So much easier. Now trying to suture that homecoming in really, really constructive ways continues to be this great challenge. You know, I still, I struggle so mightily with my meditation right now because of the sheer number of hours I have to, I don't, ha I don't have a lot of time with, 5 a.m. has always been my time. It's no longer my time because the little Buddha's running, you know, running the show, really. You know? And so that's been this amazing reconfiguration and readjustment. And it's, you know, I'll tell you, last week, it just went to hell. That was pretty damn funny. But, you know, I mean, you have a certain distance from it. But... I think that the, the, the real, I'd say, I, I, I would just say, I can only say this from personal experience, I think that the, the, climb, the climb up, that withstanding that heat, that was most difficult. I would say coming home, challenges, but they're challenges from a place that's where, where we can tap into grace. You know, and it's harder to do that, I think, on the way up. 
So not to, I guess I pretty much con contradicted what I said in the very beginning of your answering your question, didn't I? I let's hope so. You stick around me long enough, I will totally contradict myself, okay? Just so you know. Um, all kidding aside, I think there is uh, <laughs> How's this for a dodge? It depends on the day, Dave. <laughs> depends on the day. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays are awesome. Easy. Tuesdays, Thursdays, those suck. Yeah, I think, it, I think it, that's the best way I can answer that. Dep depends on the day. Thank God for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, bring them. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. I appreciate it.